When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I realized I was suffering from my own resentment. They didn't really care, or it didn't matter if they cared or not, but in my case, they didn't really care. So I was stuck with the resentment. I was stuck with the pain and the hurt and the shame and the whatever I was feeling. And uh, I, I quite frankly got tired of it. You know, I, I just wanted to be free. You're listening to Dr. Rodele Weininger on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, everybody. This is Diana, and I'm thrilled to share with you something that could really help you become more psychologically flexible in the new year. I have a course for you. Many of you are interested in learning more about acceptance and commitment therapy and how to apply it to your life. And I'm offering a Foundations of ACT course that is a virtual self-guided deep dive into ACT. This course is for the general public, but also for practitioners who want to learn more about the six core processes of psychological flexibility. You'll gain tools to unhook from challenging thoughts, cultivate acceptance and willingness, and take committed action towards what you care most about. So here's how it works. There are six modules to the course, and each module offers bite-sized teachings, meditations and visualizations, journal prompts, handouts, and experiential practices. You'll get a chance to take a pre and post self-assessment to check your growth in psychological flexibility. And the course launches on January 3rd. It's a great holiday gift for you or someone you love. And if you pre-register at drdianahill.com slash courses by December 15th, you get 50 off and entered in to win a free ACT Daily Journal. So go to drdianahill.com and register. And I'm so excited to take this journey into ACT with you. Today, we are going to talk about something that everyone has. I know you have them because I have them too, which is longstanding recurring painful patterns. And Radule Weininger, who is a Buddhist psychologist, will unpack what they are and give some strategies from her perspective of Buddhist psychology on how to shift them. But before we do that, I have Jill here, and I want to talk with her about something that I think really stood out for me during the conversation with Radule, which is sort of the idea that there's a lot of processes that she's talking about that felt really familiar. And I think that whether you're coming at this uh, 
conversation from a perspective of having done therapy before or you're new to these concepts, you'll see the sort of thread through through it all that feels, okay, yeah, this is what what is effective in working with longstanding patterns. And what I think it really does boil down to is hopefully a future of psychology that is more about processes and less about these, you know, less less sort of division around schools of thought and seeing the underlying processes that are similar amongst them, things like acceptance, things like compassion, and things like being able to identify a pattern when you are caught in it. Yeah, I thought this episode was so interesting. And the same thing stuck out to me too, Diana, is how, you know, I thought I wasn't going to know much about what Radelay had to talk about because I'm not really well versed in Buddhist psychology or, you know, Eastern spiritual traditions like like you are. And and I almost felt this sense of relief at, you know, oh, it's kind of like we're all speaking, we're all saying the same thing. We're just speaking a slightly different language. And to have themes of compassion and forgiveness and, you know, kind of transforming pain in these ways. Um and, you know, one of the things that it made me think about, maybe because she was talking about compassion, is the idea of common humanity. And, you know, this, this which is a, a sort of a step to self-compassion, which is recognizing that we're all suffering and we're all in this together. And I feel like right now, more than ever, we're, you know, we're so divided as a people. Anytime I'm reminded that we have more in common than not, it just feels like a relief to me. And and whether that's in the world or whether that's because of kind of psychological pain, or as you were saying, like in the field of psychology, that these camps don't need to be arguing over who's right or who's wrong. Like maybe we can recognize all the good that we've discovered helps people and the elements that we all have in common. And the most important of which is the the goal to alleviate suffering. Yes, it makes me think about this paper that Stefan Hoffman and Stephen Hayes wrote, uh, I think it was a couple years ago, and it was something to the effect of um, something like the future of science, process-based therapy. or And the idea behind it had to do with psychology really kind of boiling down to these, these core common processes that when we engage in them, things like forgiveness, things like being able to step into um, a perspective, you know, sort of more perspective taking on ourselves and each other, we, we flourish. And there's so many different roads that can lead to that. And I think in, in particular, when we're talking about longstanding patterns, we're often stuck in the same longstanding processes. <laughs> and, and so in this episode, we talk about some of those longstanding patterns, how to how to identify them and know when they're going to show up, and some of Rodley's ideas around how to do something different. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Rodley Weininger. Today we're going to be speaking with Rodley Weininger. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice, founder of the nonprofit Mindful Heart Programs, and teacher of deep mindfulness and compassion practices in Buddhist psychology. And today we're going to be talking about her book, Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Freedom and Peace at Last, with a forward by the Dalai Lama and Joanna Macy. It's a real delight to have you here, Radelay. We're friends, we're colleagues, and also uh, this is the second time you've been on the podcast to talk about your work. So it's really wonderful to talk with you again. Thank you so much for having me here. I look forward to this. 
we were chatting about, um, you had come to my office, actually, it was the first time that we had met since COVID. And we were sitting outside and we were chatting about your mindful heart programs. And right when you came, you told me that the Dalai Lama had written a foreword to your book. And I was taken aback uh, just by the one, the honor of that, but also a part of me got really curious. How in the world do you get the Dalai Lama to write a foreword to your book? Well, um, you know, I have been traveling to Dhamsala, India quite a few times. And uh, one of those uh, times when I had an audience with him, uh, I gave him my last book, Hard Work, The Path of Self-Compassion. And when I had already passed, he called me back and he said, I want you to talk not about religion, but about science and psychology. And so I took that really to heart. And I think uh, that that's probably why he chose uh, my book to write a foreword, that it is making this bridge between psychology and uh, and science and, and Buddhist philosophy. I had actually just asked for a blurb when they came back with a foreword. So that's that was good luck. Yeah, very good luck. Absolutely. Well, I I hope today we can talk more about the message in your book. And it's really this idea of longstanding, repetitive, painful patterns and how we can use psychology and Buddhist psychology to start to unravel them. Will you start by just telling us a little bit about what these longstanding, painful, repetitive, painful patterns are and why you've been studying them? Well, first, I think I have been talking with my mentor, Jack Cornfield, for the last 20-some, probably more, 30 years about them, because I have those in my own life. You know, I came from, a, I had to work through a lot of things psychologically. You know, my mother hit me in an orphanage the first uh, two years of my life. And so from that came a sense of being an outsider, being not quite accepted, uh, feeling easily abandoned or rejected. And so I just realized that those kinds of feelings were kind of haunting me in my life. And so I felt I was a sitting duck, duck to my lips, my long-standing recurrent painful patterns. And so Jack really encouraged me, said, you did so many years of therapy and what is it now? 41 years of Buddhist practice. And well, he said that 20 years ago, so it was only 20 years of Buddhist practice. But I think he said that, uh, you know, why don't you work on this and work on it for others and write a book about it? And so I, I just remember where I walked in the forest and we were talking on the phone together in front of my uh, office at the Museum of Natural History. And he just really suggested that. Then I saw with my clients that they so often have this feeling of, um, why is this happening to me again? You know, why do I meet the 10th untrustworthy guy or unreliable woman of whatever is happening to us in life. 
And the other thing is that I felt that Buddhist practice wasn't really addressing this. Yes, they had a word for it, like samskara or shankara or kleshas. But uh, with mindfulness, notice it and let it go. It wasn't really coming to the heart of of these deep patterns. And then I felt, you know, I've been mainly psychodynamically trained, even though also Gestalt and Rogerian and whatnot. Um, I felt that, yes, especially in the psychodynamic way, there's a deep understanding, complexities, psychoids, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but there wasn't really much of a way of working with them in the moment. You know, it's just people became immensely self-conscious about them, but uh, and maybe really ruminating about what happened in their past and trying to understand it, but it didn't really help them to move forward. Even some modern mindfulness practices go really more in the moment of being triggered. You know, it helps with that. But sometimes there's more to it. You know, there is this deja vu. Why is that happening again? And then it just felt we needed a deeper medicine. I actually read your book. I was sharing with you earlier. I went down to a retreat with my mom in Mexico and drove down there with her. And what a perfect place to to read about longstanding painful patterns with your mother (laughs) on retreat. And what I noticed when I was reading your book is that the repetitive part feels so dominant. Like it's like the same feeling that shows up over and over again. And, and I appreciate how you're talking about these different angles in because there's the Buddhist psychology angle, there's the psychodynamic angle, there's an act angle, but really underneath it is probably some um, similar process that's happening for folks when these patterns are getting activated. Yes. uh, You know, I think it's really important to learn to recognize when we get murked. I hope it sounds as it feels, you know, it's, it's like something slimy coming over us. Let's say we get an email from somebody who disinvites us to the birthday party or, you know, It's just kind of, it would bother everybody, but if you have this kind of lurp of abandonment or rejection, then it just really can spin you out of your orbit. And so uh, the signs, how you can recognize that you have been lurped, is first that you notice it in your body. You know, you notice that it's this tightness in the chest or it knocks the wind out of you or you feel uh, dizzy or nauseous or um, your temperature changes or, you know, so that's one. Then um, deep feelings, you know, and there's often we get on our own case. Why am I so angry about this? I shouldn't be angry. I'm a Buddhist practitioner. I'm in therapy, you know, I should just brush this off. But then there is this fear and there's this anger and then there's this shame. And then there is this feeling excluded, you know, that seems just beyond the measure of what seems appropriate. Often people will say something like you're overreacting. I feel like that's sort of a, <laughs> a, a signal that you've been lurked. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then overreacting, that's then often used kind of in a critical way. Don't right. overreact. Or we tell this to ourselves, I'm overreacting. And it doesn't help, really. It, it kind of, it's a second arrow, as they say in Buddhist philosophy. It, it adds insult to injury, you know. And so that's why uh, uh, I, when I come to my steps, which comes a little later, self-compassion, self-understanding is really important. But another way to realize that we have been lurped is that we have a trauma response. You know, we, there might be a nightmare, there might be intrusive and ruminating thoughts. We circle around something. Maybe we feel even a little dizzy. There might be a bit of dissociation, this feeling of, wow, this is unreal. You know, I feel kind of unreal. Or there is a sense of generalization. You know, it's like, ooh, are all my neighbors now looking at me the wrong way? You know, so there are uh, many signs that we have gotten lurked. And it's oftentimes it helps to notice it, you know, once we hold it with compassion, because uh, then it doesn't feel so out of control. It doesn't feel so mysterious. It doesn't feel so unreasonable. And when we can start to kind of put a name on it and, and see the familiar lerps that show up over and over again, that's the repetitive part. It does. It gives us a little bit of distance from it. We can, we can look at it. We can do something with it as opposed to just being fully engulfed in it. That's right. It, it helps to notice there is a thing you know, that's happening. And then I noticed that some of my colleagues, even some of my esteemed colleagues, started to lose, to use the word. Mm. You know, my Jungian analyst friends who teaches all around the world started to use loops and thought, and I heard from my clients who said, oh yeah, when you told me about lerps years ago, and I thought, hmm, this is actually not a bad word. <laughs> so... Uh, it was more that I realized that hits the spot in terms of uh, describing the feeling and what the feeling feels like. One of the teachings that I got from you, I guess it was back in 2017 or 18 when we had the, the mud flow here in Santa Barbara and you were doing what you do, Radelay, which is creating places for people to come and um, offering, you offer so much to the community. You give back so much that, and you had created this beautiful place for people to come at a church down in, in Santa Barbara after the mud flow. And we were planning on what we were going to do our presentations or our talks on. And I was going straight to post-traumatic growth. I had gotten on the post-traumatic growth bandwagon <laughs> and was ready to like, just launch into that. And I remember very well you saying to me, we have to be careful of the spiritual bypass here and we need to stay in what's happening right now for people. Um, so if we think about that in terms of our longstanding repetitive patterns, we're not in the trauma anymore, but it sometimes can feel like it. And the first, the first step that you talk about is identifying it, but the next few steps are really about how to have the courage 
and the willingness and the practice to um, really transform the pain that's happening in our body. And you mentioned self-compassion. Can you talk about some of those steps that are sort of um, being with pain without uh, running from it, covering it up, escaping from it, or getting into our old patterns with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's the first step is really noticing that we have been lurked, you know, then we have a choice, we can work with it. And then the next one is, you know, our mindfulness practice, you know, without being able to hold just a little bit of attention, it's hard to do our work. But then what's important, and I imagine that as a psycho-spiritual container, is to be compassionate with ourselves, to be kind with ourselves, and then later to forgive ourselves for whatever we need to forgive ourselves for, and and maybe also others. And then to learn this ability to stay with our suffering, not to ruminate it, but to stay with the felt sense. You know, like if we have a heartache, to feel that heartache and to stay with the physical sensation of that. And then to breathe through it, you know, to feel, if we feel very gently the breath going through our contracted, aching heart, then there can be a little bit of movement while also being deeply with it. And, you know, that comes back psychodynamically to being the mother with the child or the father with the child. You know, one of our deepest early wounds is our parents not being with us, not seeing us, brushing it off, not wanting to be bothered or maybe not having the time, being overwhelmed. And so it's important that we ourselves are our best friend and being with it. And then a little bit later comes the step of disidentifying, you know, seeing it as a little separate, but that comes a little bit after the feeling it deeply, then maybe a little bit Jungian embodied imagination might be uh, great, you know, to if that disgust or that fear or that shame you had was a little creature, what would that be? You know, and how would you relate to it? And I remember some people feeling uh, that, oh, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this ugly little thing. And then to learn to be with it and relate to it and to with some distance, yet also with some compassion and and tenderness. And then uh, come some other steps like loosening and up with some letting go and also letting the mystery in, you know, what I call this wider perspective, whether that is... Uh, through prayer, and I'm not a terribly religious person, I have to admit, but more in a, in a much more uh, open way. You know, it's like whatever that tradition is for you, Jewish or Christian, or maybe uh, just generally interface, or just feeling there is some presence, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And it's not even personal. Or maybe it's personal and it's not personal. Who knows? It's the big mystery. 
But sometimes we come to this edge of, uh, wow, I can't do anymore. I need help, you know, or I need to open myself up to something broader. And that happens really beautifully with that practice, which I call deep mindfulness and great compassion practice, the Sokchan and Mahamudra inspired practices where uh, we can actually feel the spaciousness of the this field quality around us. You know, that there is something that's not bound by time and space or the skin-encapsulated ego, but that is, that is there, you know, and that even though we don't know what it is, we can kind of surrender to it. We can relate to it. We can maybe experience it as a field of care. You know, and uh, that can be really helpful when we are at our wit's end with our uh, our lerps. Many years ago, I went to a Tara Brock um, workshop and, and one of the things that she taught was spiritual reparenting. And that's exactly sort of what you're what you're talking about. And I think it shows up in a lot of different therapeutic approaches of being able to give to ourselves maybe that which we did not have. Um, and, you know, when I was thinking about my own, I have a very long-standing, painful, let's say, I'm a, let me say it correctly. I have a long-standing, repetitive, painful pattern, a lerp around um, feeling left behind. Or uh, and it and it came from I started school when I was really young. I was four when I started kindergarten. I was a very young kindergartner, and I was also quite um, sensitive, and um, you know, just not ready emotionally. But I was ready intellectually. So I think at that at that time they used to put you in if you could pass. You know, if you were ready intellectually, they didn't think as much about the social emotional. And I spent my grade school years feeling a little bit a little bit left behind, like I wasn't quite part of the cool group. I wasn't ready to do the cool things. I was still playing and doing imaginary play when other people were done with that. And then it tra it translated into my adult relationships, right? And it's so helpful to be able, at least for me, I've gone back and spent a lot of time with that little girl and, and just sort of talk to her about it, like that it's okay that, that she that she felt that way. And it made sense that she felt that way in doing these compassionate practices with ourselves. I do think there is some, some healing that, that can happen that can be pretty powerful and very intimate. And you can do that in a therapy room, but you can also do it with yourself through journaling or through meditation practice or through visualization, or even just looking at old pictures of yourself and seeing yourself from a different perspective and a different point of view you as an adult and you as a person that can now parent that version of you that's still in there. That's right. And you know what that also does? It, it gives um, more compassion for others. You know, because such as we were left behind, others are left behind. Yeah. And everybody has their, their lerp. That was the other thing that I really liked about reading your book is when lerps get entangled. <laughs> so like when you have your pain, like I, I feel left behind and then I have maybe I get into an encounter with a friend who's really into like dominating or something like that. And then it, it can really become problematic, right? Because my lerp is getting entangled in their lerp. So how do you work with folks around that in terms of our relationships when we get entangled in our longstanding patterns within a relationship? 
Yeah, that happens so often, you know, it's, uh, especially when people come closer and become more intimate with each other, then, then the lips kind of start blooming. <laughs> and then often that can be a long-standing conflict. And so no, noticing what's happening is really important, you know, wow, this is happening to us both, you know, and it's very powerful when it's a couple. And, uh, and then, you know, our mindfulness skills and our self-compassion skills can be really helpful. I remember I did um, these uh, mindful pause cards, you know, like, and I did one for pairs and couples, you know, so... And I did it with a couple in, in therapy. You know, they were really uh, uh, at each other's throat and really one was indignant and the other one was angry and all of that. And then I said, well, let's do this little practice and then we continue. You know, then you can be again at each other's throat. And which was just taking this little mindful pause. Notice both of you, your body. Notice your breath, notice the exhale, notice your feelings, notice a bit of compassion for yourself, feel a little bit of compassion for yourself. Notice the energy of the other end and notice what's your deepest longing for, for yourself and for both of you. And then notice the breath both of you breathe and then again, come to the present moment. And it was really interesting what a big difference it made. You know, just changing the energy like that. You know, noticing, whoa, we both have been nerved. But we both deserve attention, mindfulness, and compassion. And there is actually something we both long for. We just want to come to it in different ways. We both for peace. We both long for being loved. We actually both long to give love. And so uh, giving a little bit of space, you know, to just stay with this little mindful pause of three, four minutes or two minutes can often um, change what is going on. And I think there's also some humility that comes with noticing, yeah, we both have been lurked. I spoke with Rhonda McGee, who's an attorney, and she speaks in the arena of racial justice. And she uses that mindful pause in interracial conversations. I mean, talk about LERPs, like these are longstanding repetitive patterns of racism that exist within us and then are also way before us. There's, you know, sort of the karma that goes way back before we were born and how to use that pause to be able to stay with a difficult conversation longer. So whether you're in a um, conversation with your spouse and you're in a heated moment, or you're in a conversation with somebody that you disagree with, or you just notice your own patterning, it's so helpful to, to do that pause. So then we can operate more from our wisest self. I mean, ultimately that's the, the I think some of the goal of this is being able to operate from our, from our wisest self, as opposed to our self that's just been completely gotten dysregulated by our, our patterning. 
I am here with Katie Rothfelder, who is our dissemination coordinator. And we thought we'd bring her on because we talk a lot about Praxis, how Praxis sponsors this podcast. They offer online continuing education for professionals, everything from DBT to ACT training to compassion-focused therapy. And Katie's had some personal experience with Praxis that I think would be helpful for you to all learn about. Yeah, Diana, I started out with Stephen Hayes Act Immersion Program, and that was really my first chance to get, you know, really into ACT. And then since then, I've had these kind of on-demand course opportunities. Um, the one that really sticks out to me is Lou Lasbugato's Feedback Enhanced ACT course, which was this really beautiful mix of instruction for really difficult ACT concepts and then in-depth learning with practice. That grew my muscles as a, a brand new clinician so much. So if you are interested in taking a Praxis course, go ahead and go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and we have a discount code for you for some of the live courses. Check them out, Praxis Continuing Education. I'd love to revisit forgiveness because as we enter the holidays and people are around family um, or even just having memories of people that aren't here anymore with us, I think that forgiveness is one of the most challenging things to do. I wanted to read a little bit from your book because your chapter on forgiveness was really powerful for me. I'm, I'm working on some forgiveness in my life and I, um, I found it really uh, touching what you wrote. So you write that practicing forgiveness can be extremely challenging. We humans instinctually tend to protect our wounds by holding on to our stories of hurt. Again and again, our blaming stories fuel resentment and hurt in a self-reinforcing way. These stories seem to validate and even honor the suffering we went through. And it's natural to want to guard our victimhood and project guilt onto others, thereby preserving our ego. It's often easier to see the world in black and white, right and wrong. This pattern has been passed down to most of us generation after generation. And later on, you say, our life energy will stay tied up in old stories, a preoccupied mind, an inability to love freely and trust, and an incapacity to live with ease, as long as we're holding on to that resentment. So how do you work with with people around these, these painful resentments to move towards freedom and forgiveness. Yeah. And I think it's difficult. It's such a hot potato, you know, it's so hard to touch because I think the idea of forgiveness has been often misused as be a good Catholic. That's what I learned, you know, or uh, be a good person, be polite, be uh you know, it becomes like this obligation we are not ready for. And maybe some peer pressure, you know, or some pressure of our religious communities or whatever. And so how can there be authenticity? And what was a game changer for me was uh, this little book by actually Jack Cornfield, The Art of uh, Loving Kindness, Forgiveness, and Peace. It's a little book, but it's really worth its weight in gold. And uh, from him, I learned that forgiveness isn't mainly, it's not really something that we grant the other, you know, we do the other a favor by forgiving them, that it's really about us. 
I even have this little quote by Jack Cornfield, which I find just says it all. Forgiveness is letting go of past suffering and betrayal, a release of the burden of pain and hate that we carry. And that was a real important insight for me, that I was carrying the pain of my resentment. You know, I had a lot about, you know, the two years in an orphanage, about my relatives who didn't really acknowledge me as worthwhile or whatever it was, you know. And so lots of years of therapy there. But I realized I was suffering from my own resentment. They didn't really care. Or it didn't matter if they cared or not, but in my case, they didn't really care. So I was stuck with the resentment. I was stuck with the pain and the hurt and the shame and the whatever I was feeling. And uh, I, I quite frankly got tired of it. You know, I, I just wanted to be free. And that's the message of the Buddha is that one of freedom. We want to be free. And, I, and, you know, I think we can't prescribe it to us. We can't press the button and flush it down the toilet. Okay, now I forgive. We have to be ready for it, but we also have to be open for it. As we are open, are open to forgiveness, it's like cracking the door a little open. And then it happens much quicker than we think. And oftentimes the hardest ones to forgive ourselves. Maybe why did I say this? You know, why wasn't I smarter? Why didn't I stand up to my boss? Or why was that, did I stand up too much to my boss? You know, so it's like whether it's our fault or not, it's important to at some point let go of that grudge and, and let go of that burden and then we are more free for something new to happen. It really is a is a grace that comes to us. And, and there's sort of like the first step is, am I willing to forgive before I actually have to forgive? I can just maybe be willing to forgive and then maybe the forgiveness will come. And actually, when I was driving down to Mexico with my mom, I was talking to her about her relationship with my dad because they've been married for 50 years this summer. And I know that there's a lot of things about both of them that are difficult. <laughs> and I, I asked, I was like, how do you, how, what, what, what is it? Like, what's your secret? Cause I want to be married to my partner for 50 years. I adore him. And she said, you know, we have this agreement that when we're in a fight, the first one that drops it wins the fight. <laughs> the first one that drops it wins. And it really is like, it's a win of letting go of the fight and, and just saying, I, I'm it's, I love you too much, or I love myself too much to keep holding on to this grudge and keep chewing it. And the, that sort of satisfying feeling of going around and around the circle of resentment, but it's not really true satisfaction. So I appreciate you have a mindfulness um, meditation in there on forgiveness. And you'd mentioned that some of the Shambhala, um, Shambhala is going to be offering some of these recordings for people to listen to so they can hear your voice guiding, guiding them through the meditations. You have a lot of meditations written out and it can be something that therapists could use with clients. It could be something that um, you use with yourself and then, or if they purchase the book through some, I'm guessing they'll get the access to the audible meditations as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it will be on my personal website, Uh radiphd.com. 
the meditations, I think it's 35 of them or so, are already recorded professionally. And I think they will be for free. You can just download them for yourself. In your book, you talk a bit about awareness and awareness is really foundational to identifying your LERPs, but also you expand this on this concept of awareness. And I think do bring in some of your background of Buddhist psychology and some of your background of Jungian psychology as well to describe these different types of awareness. And I really appreciated how you broke down these different types of awareness that we can be engaged in because it, again, it's sort of just another level of deepening our understanding of how to be present with something without being engulfed in it. So can you describe to us the different types of awareness that we can have? You know, I was thinking the chapter is called the medicine of awareness. And I do think that medicine, that awareness is crucial. I think it was Viktor Frankl uh, who talked about choice, you know, and I think without awareness, there's no choice. When we are unconscious, when we are unaware, we can't choose. And I think he said in the concentration camp, the last of human freedom is our ability to choose. And so I think awareness leads to choice. That's why it's so important. But to talk about awareness, I first made a distinction between the noun and the verb. You know, awareness can be a verb, like awareing, being aware, uh, being aware of what's happening to us in life, what we sense, what we feel, what we notice, how we relate. So there is uh, the sense of uh Awareness as verb. And then this might become a little bit more esoteric. There's awareness as something that's already there, the field quality of awareness, something we can dip into. And uh, in Buddhist philosophy, that's sometimes likened to uh, the ocean and the waves. You know, there's the ocean of awareness and then the wave of the phenomenon or the event. And they are actually not separate. You know, they're both water, you know, but uh, they just appear differently in the moment. So I think that's, that's an important distinction. And then, you know, there's awareness for ourselves, you know, being aware of what's inside of ourselves. And I think that's very important in act, I think, no? And uh, then there is meta-awareness, which is uh, noticing the world around us or us in the world around us, you know, as if we could have a bird's eye view. And then lately, there's a lot of talk about metacognitive awareness, which is being aware of how we are aware. You know, it's like, oh... Are we able to concentrate or are we just distracted? You know, so this quality of being aware of our quality of awareness is really quite important. And again, then there is field awareness, which gives a wider perspective. You know, if we notice it's not just awareness, it's a function of our brain and our skin encapsulated self. 
but it's something that's actually a priori there and that we can dip into, then uh, it connects us to a much broader perspective. Does it make sense? Yes. And the field awareness part, I think, is a is an interesting one because I think for folks that have been practicing mindfulness for a long time or have it's become much more of a popular practice, the field awareness is a little bit different than being in, in mindfulness of you know your five senses or mindfulness of what's happening inside your body. The field awareness in ACT would sort of map more onto um, the sort of self as, as um, context as, as opposed to self as content. So that core process of being able to kind of lean back and open up to a greater interconnected space, which when you're in a LERP, going back to these repetitive painful patterns can be really helpful because we get so narrowed in. And at least, at least for me, when I'm in mine, I can tell the contraction in my body and my narrowed focus. And I get really fused with my thoughts. And if I can step back into something and lean back into something bigger, it can be really liberating. But I guess the question is, how do we do that? <laughs> because it sounds good, but the actual practice of it is a little bit more well, challenging. Actually, that is my, my next, well, I have it in this book already. You know, I have it in the heart medicine book, uh, kind of snuck in there, you know. Uh, but my next book will be basically about that. Those of us who have been doing long retreats at times, 10 days, four weeks, whatever, how long, we notice that in the end of such a retreat, we actually come into this place that is spacious, where it's almost like awareness as a field quality breaks through. However, then we realize that it wears off. You know, it takes maybe two weeks or a week or two and back we are, landed in our daily conundrum. And after actually decades of going to 10-day and four-week retreats, I kind of thought, hmm, okay. And so then I heard that Tibetans have pathways, which they call the pointing out instructions, how you can actually much more direct access that. And But those practices were oftentimes uh, quite secret, or you had to do huge kind of preliminaries, 150,000 prostrations and this and that. And one day I was talking, well, I learned a little bit from Alan Wallace about this, but then one day I was talking to a man who writes a lot about Buddhism and is a psychiatrist, uh, head of the residency in UC Irvine. Roger Walsh. And I said, Roger, I really want to know what the Tibetans know. And I noticed going to Dharma Stamsala that they do know something. They have this different quality. They can be in Chinese prison and not be destroyed, you know, after 10 years. While having worked a lot with PTSD and actually with survivors of political torture, I saw a real difference. You know, I thought, how in the world are they doing this? You know, because I, in Berkeley, I was part of a group, uh, Survivor International, working with survivors of political torture. And here I talked to these monks who had been 15 years in Chinese prisons and tortured, and they were not destroyed. So I got really curious, you know, just being up there and kind of having my little thinking cap on. 
And so then Roger said to me, you know, there's one man who really teaches this very directly, and that's uh, Dan Brown, who's a, a professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. And since the 17th, since the 70s has been studying this. But go quickly, his health isn't good. So I made a beeline and actually he taught then in Switzerland. I was in Switzerland that fall, you know, I was doing it. And since then I have doing everything because his health is really getting worse. But as you told me, Lock Kelly does a little bit, not quite as direct as Dan Brown. Dan Brown is really the boot camp of learning this. But Lock Kelly is doing kind of a bit more simplified version of that. And some other, I think, Adir Shanti. And, and we had Lock Kelly on the show a while back to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, he talks about sort of these glimpses of being able to access that big open awareness without um, having to do the 150,000 prostrations first, which is, you know, Americans, we, we just want to get to the chase with all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit more than glimpse. Yeah. <laughs> a very good start. Yeah. <laughs> Having now studied with Dan for the last five years, I'm becoming more courageous to kind of bring this into my teaching. Actually, by now I can barely teach anything else. <laughs> it kind of took over. And so, yeah, my, if you look on my platform, mindfulheartprograms.org, um, I teach actually for free Mondays and Wednesday nights and Tuesday mornings. And we mentioned that when we talked of a spiritual bypass, how can we teach these practices? And it's not just becoming, wow, I can get into this cool state, you know, which would be sad, you know, that would be a spiritual bypass. And it could lead to that, or it could lead to ego inflation. So I have a very strong belief that we have to, whether with LERPs or just with this practice, uh, that we have to uh, do this to really heal our deep wounds, but also to be of service. You know, my thing that I'm really interested in, I'm very interested in social and environmental activism. But those people burn out and most likely higher life forms will have a bit of trouble in the decades to come. You know, if we uh, listen to science and to what whoever speaks. And so I think it will be important for us to be with whatever happens in the world with a wider perspective, you know, to uh, root ourselves in this wider awareness, which is not transy or spaced out, which is very clear and very lucid and actually very high functioning and uh, be mindful from that perspective, you know, notice because it's also heart opening to be in these glimpses, to be in this field of awareness and to dedicate this to our bodhisattva tasks to our service. So that's kind of my vision for that. Yes. So the, the very last thing I wanted to say is that um, you, you go through these 12 steps to help people un, um, unravel their LERPs and, and live differently with, in the world. And one of the key steps that you end on is of service. And we mentioned that a little bit today of just the degree of service that you offer. And I'm just 
I'm curious, but you're also married to a physician, Michael Kearney, who's a um, hospice physician. So he's doing incredible service in the world too. And I'm just curious how doing this type of service maybe has helped you heal your own wounds, your own history. I think in intuitively, I always did, you know, I worked, my mom was a physician, so I worked in her practice always since I was 13, counting little uh, blood work counts and things like this. And then from when I was 16, I worked in the hospital and then 17, 18, my job was in an old people's home, actually on a ward where people were dying for five years. And it helped me um, uh, pay during med school for my India trips. <laughs> so, and I loved being there, you know. I, so I think it, it intuitively helped me. But if I look at it from a little bit from the outside, I would say it helps one to uh, not feel so self-preoccupied, you know, and to not feel like such a victim, you know, and we are sometimes victims, but then we become survivors and then maybe from victim to survivor become wounded healers. You know, when I think of the story of Chiron and Asclepius, who were these two wounded healers, one wound to his foot and one wound to his heart, who became the first physicians. And so I think with our wound, we, we, uh, we learn a lot. We become wiser. Often what we experience, especially if it has been great or it feels meaningless. You know, we are dropped in this sense of what is this? There is no meaning. Why is this happening? And, uh, in a way, as we pass on to others as wounded healers, as neighbors, as family members, as whatever we are, it, it becomes meaningful. And uh, we don't know if we can help or not. But by being there for others as much as for self, ourselves, but also for others, we give our life meaning and purpose and we give our suffering meaning and purpose. Absolutely. The true post-traumatic growth right there. Going through it, being with it and transforming it. Yeah. I think it's embedded in, in all, I would say in most therapies. Yeah. Is being able to recognize and transform what you're, what you are going through and maybe be able to use it to be of service to others. So there's many different steps that you offer identifying your LERP, practicing self-compassion, mindfulness, awareness, forgiveness, service. And there's more that are in your book. And folks, I really recommend you go check it out. And then also just learn from Radhali. She's available to you. She's uh, Go to her website and you can practice with her on a regular basis many times a week, which is a wonderful resource for folks. So thank you, Radhali, so much for being on the show and many blessings to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this wonderful podcast. Luck to you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.